Hey everyone, welcome back to Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Sue Heilbronner, and I don't know, I think I'm in a bit of a fitness spell here. We were really doing some fitness focus today. I'm excited to have with us Nicole DeBoom. She is the founder and CEO of Skirt Sports. And Nicole, thanks for joining us. This is so cool. Well, it's really fitting because I ran here from the gym, not literally running from the gym, but we were both pushing time. So hey, I guess it's uh, definitely a fitness theme across the board. There you go. Uh, I won't tell you how I got here, but it does involve some use of fuel resources anyway. uh, (laughs) That's okay. I'll get that in later, Nicole, I promise. (laughs) So Nicole, the way we start Real Leaders, the podcast, is we ask the interviewee to share with us their three-minute life story. And I'd actually, given your early involvement in sort of what athleticism, athletics meant to you, I want you to start early here. Okay. Like... Born in Downers Grove, Illinois, grew up a swimmer kid, lived on the pool deck. Um, At age 16, I qualified for the 1988 Olympic trials. So I'm a total swimmer groupie watching the Olympics. I went off to be recruited to swim in college. I swam at Yale University, graduated in 1994. And when I graduated with an Ivy League degree and nothing to do, my parents were kind of putting their arms in the air like, come on, honey, let's figure this out. (laughs) But I couldn't force it. And all I could really do is a little soul searching, which for me turned into one of the, I guess, sort of founding principles that I still operate off of, which is that when you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you perform better. And I knew that no matter what, I was going to be including fitness in my life in some way. And that mantra was going to come into effect. So I got into a new sport, which was the sport of triathlon in 1994. And triathlons are swim, bike, run events of all distances. And they're definitely made for people who want to punish themselves. (laughs) And I'm in Boulder now, largely because uh, another fun thing happened. I met a boy on an airplane in 1995 who turned out to uh, be a guy named Tim DeBoom. And as you heard in Sue's intro, my last name is now DeBoom. I married that boy about a year later and he brought brought me to Boulder. (laughs) So you met a world-class triathlete while you were already into the sport of triathlon on a plane? I was a young rookie and we were going down to a race in Cancun, Mexico, and the plane was full of triathletes. And many of those triathletes I still know. It's really fun to go, hey, you were there. But yeah, Tim and I, we were young and just hit it off hooked up big time, got home, cell phones didn't exist. We were calling each other on pay phones. And I followed him to Boulder and landed here and pursued the sport of triathlon. All right. So first of all, What's the one thing that you learned as a function of being in the Olympics? Well, okay, uh, you misheard that. I was in the Olympic trials. Okay, okay, still pretty cool. But it was really cool, especially at age 16. I was just, I was kind of young and I was racing on emotion and uh, I didn't think too much. And I think that's actually something I learned. 
is that practice, 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 do what you need to do, learn your body inside and out. And when it comes time to race, it's just going to happen for you. You don't have to think too hard. And you know, another mantra that I still operate under is that when my body is fit and strong, my mind is fitter and stronger too. So I really learned that through my years as a swimmer. I also learned how to suffer because you stare at a black line on the bottom of the pool way too long. Right. Nicole, just the way you've described your life and the fact that you landed, does Yale do swimming scholarships or do they just welcome you and not give you a scholarship? How does that work at Yale? No, they they make it hard for people to get in. You have to have some kind of special skill and then they don't give you any money. But that's okay. And I did get scholarship offers elsewhere, but I chose Yale for other reasons and happy I did. So obviously this is a, a story of somebody who's really, really focused, really a huge achiever. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious. So you're in the Olympic trials and you don't make the team. Was that a formative time for you or was that sort of eh, whatever? You know, I was so young and had had such big breakthroughs before that huge race that the race itself was just icing on the cake. But it was more of a kick in the butt to say this sport and this talent you have and this gift that you've been given can really take you places. So do not screw it up. Take it seriously. When you were that age and younger, we hear a lot about athlete parents and the pressure that comes from that for kids. Were you fairly self-motivated? Were your parents really engaged in keeping you motivated? Or how did that play out in your house? Uh, my parents were awesome. They were not crazy swimmer parents at all. My dad was like a super fun kind of parent coachy type who would come with his little stopwatch and be like, here's your splits, girls, you know, but it wasn't in a pushy or scary way. And they didn't stand at the side of the pool and just scream every breath I took or anything like that. But really, my sister was also an athletic kid, and she's two years older than me. And when you've got more than one kid and you're juggling, if that kid goes in and does swim lessons, then you're sure going to throw the other kid into swim lessons because you can't be juggling them all over town. That's right. So why triathlon? What turned you on about that at the beginning? Um, I actually have always been someone who likes to push limits and especially physically, I mean, in business, it's, it's evolved, right? But um, I watched one of the early Ironman triathlons, the one that's in Kona in Hawaii. It used to be on the wide world of sports. And it was this race back in the mid 80s that featured a young woman named Julie Moss. And this woman was like 21 years old. She was a college student and as you watched her do this race, she started leading the race, right? She's young and she's just going and not thinking. And suddenly towards the end of the run, her body starts to break down. And sure enough, she's wobbling. And by the last quarter mile, she's on her hands and knees starting to crawl in. And I mean, you can tell bodily functions were all over the place, right? People were standing right next to her going, you can do it because you're not allowed to touch someone or help them. Well, as she's crawling in, another woman passes her. She didn't even know the woman who passed her didn't even see Julie, right? So it's just this like epic race of pushing yourself to the utmost limits and I get chills even thinking about it, right? It really put triathlon on the map of something that's just sort of brutal, but almost in that way of watching a horror movie where you kind of can't look away, but you don't, you think it's horrible, but maybe there's some part of it that's drawing you in. Yeah, I went, I took that experience and I think I was in high school at the time and I thought, 
I think I'm going to do that someday. I think I'm going to push myself to that level someday. Wow. That's amazing. Most people wouldn't see that story. It's, it's a harrowing story. I think a lot of people have seen that tape. If you haven't seen that tape, go to YouTube. You'll see it. It is really incredible. Why World of Sports, for those of you who don't know, was a television show on a network on television uh, they and used a tape. to do that yeah and then <laughs> and they... you mentioned a tape that right. was called a VHS. sorry that would have been a tape exactly it's, i'm sure it's sitting in some vault somewhere so i'm thinking you come out of yale and you have a little bit of a conflict right like i assume a lot of people in your class are going to wall street to be investment bankers and mm-hmm. you obviously have a really big brain to go with your athletic prowess was it at all difficult to decide where to put most of your energy given your wide range of talent? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the first time in my life I realized that there's a thing called therapists and they're out there to help us make sense of the times in our lives when everything's really gray. You just don't know what to do. You're just sitting there wondering, how am I going to get through this? What's this weird feeling? Is that something called depression? Could that bubble up? I, I really started learning this concept of soul searching and figuring out how to soul search for myself. And that, of course, involved getting out and doing athletic things and letting my mind free up. Nicole, you were a wildly successful triathlete, but you didn't know that at the beginning. Did you have a backup plan? No, not at all. I actually was temping, which was really hilarious because I had jobs like go sign people up for timeshares in Cancun, you know, and uh, one day jobs where I would put on like a Disney character suit, sweat (laughs) my brains out for the Walt Disney store in Oak Brook Mall. I I mean, probably there was some liability there for us uh, (laughs) young kids. But um, and then I ended up waitressing, which honestly, I loved. I actually waitressed a few stints in my life, but I couldn't feel comfortable in like an office setting. I had some of those job opportunities. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't that there was no passion yet. I had to find a passion before I could be happy. It's funny you mentioned waitressing. I frequently say that I was better at waitressing than anything else I've done in my career. And the other thing that I think is true about waitressing is it is wildly entrepreneurial. I mean, you develop these tactics on how to make money and how to do upsells and how to tell a story that's super compelling that people really want to support. I I learned while one year I was waitressing, I was going to law school the next year and I learned, no, no, people do not over tip you because they want to support your future as a lawyer. That was a really good lesson. But uh, that is awesome. I actually ran out into the parking lot one time and was like, hey, did you forget the tip? Because these people were so nice. And then they felt so weird. I think they dug in their pocket and handed me 10 bucks. (laughs) That was a good tip that day. Super entrepreneurial. (laughs) So, okay. All right. So you start doing triathlon. What happens next? Well, I meet this guy. We move to Boulder. We get married. He's already a wildly successful triathlete, one of the best young phenoms in the sport, one of the top Americans in all distances. And I just kind of rode his coattails, like literally sat on his wheel on training rides and learned how to get tough and learn skills and then started pushing. And all you could really do is just see how good you could get. That was it. So I raced and I just tried to improve in every race I did. And it took a few years by um, the time I was 29 years old, I I turned pro. 
What's the peak age for, I know endurance sports are so different for age. What's generally the best age for a triathlete? You know, I think men are a couple years younger than women. And if you're talking the Ironman, so the Ironman triathlons are a 2.4 mile swim, followed by 112 miles on the bike, followed by a 26.2 mile run, all in the same day, all without breaks. Okay, so yeah, Sue's laughing right now. Um, And this is absurd that we do this stuff. For women, that level of distance, women start to probably peak around 30 and they could go until their late 30s and still be at the top of their game and improving. So I'd say roughly 34, 35 is a really good age. So you came into it at a good time. Yeah. One of the things about your story that I I didn't know that I think is really interesting is that you came into this sport that became so important to you and became important to the business that you created because, or at least in partnership with a man, there are a lot of people that talk about women in sports and how girls and women often get into outdoor activities or athletic activities with a boyfriend or a significant other. And what's super interesting is that a lot of the work you're doing right now is about women inspiring women to get outside. And I just hadn't really put that together. Absolutely. And you know what's really interesting is that Tim was a huge part of my formation as a triathlete and a champion in many ways. But when I started the business, he was a supporter, but he has never been an active business partner. So you're doing triathlon, you're doing well, you go pro at age 29. And what happens next? Well, I, I watched my husband at that time, he was peaking at age 29, 30, 31. And he went on to win the Hawaii Ironman. And in fact, he's still the last American to hold that title. So he won the Hawaii Ironman for the first time just three weeks after 9-11, which was incredibly emotional. And he won the race that year by 15 minutes, which no one's ever done since. And then he backed it up the next year, won it again. And then the third year, he had actually a kidney stone during the race. And he was in second place. They pulled him. So here I am racing phenomenally in the money in every race I've ever done until the very last race I did. That's when I hung it up. Um, In fact, getting 12th in the Hawaii Ironman, fourth American woman, like really phenomenal results, but my husband was winning it. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, in my family, our careers revolved around his career and I didn't have a problem with that because he was better than me. You know, and in many ways, he helped me get as good as I did. But what it did help me see was that I most likely was not going to win that race. And I was most likely not going to be the world champion. I was a great triathlete and I would find my ways to be my own world champion in that sport. But I knew in my heart that that was not going to be my jackpot. So I, being sort of an entrepreneurial and very curious person and very extroverted person who thrives on energy. I was just open to what else was going to hit for me Mm. while I continued to pursue the sport of triathlon. That was my day job. So something hit for you. What happened? I had, I like to call this an epiphany run. I actually have a theory that in sports, I use sports for meditation at this point in my life. I, I don't actually meditate. And I know it's not the same thing for people who are like, that's not meditation. But for me, it does have some of the uh, similar results. It helps me clear my mind and free my mind. And there's a point for me, and it's literally 20 minutes. It's 20 minutes into any run, 
bike ride or workout I do where I don't have to think, that's when all of a sudden I realized that all the crap that was in my head, all the laundry lists and the oh my God, do we have to have sex tonight? And you know, what? what's going to, you know, uh, who's taking care of the babysitter? And uh, what are we going to do with a car? All that stuff's gone, right? And I'm not saying sex with my husband is a bad thing. It's a great thing. But you know, you're sitting here going through your list for the day and it's just gone and your mind is open. And there was this very special day in December of 2003 where now your mind is free to fill with things that, might have meaning. And I looked at myself while I was on a run in Lyons, Colorado. I ran by a storefront window. I checked out my reflection. And the first thought that came to my head while I was wearing my all men's, all black, bad fitting fitness clothing with a little running hat that literally made my head look like a pea. (laughs) You know, it was horrible. And I thought, man, I look like a boy. And I am uninspired, and I just want to feel cute. Why can't I do something about that? And it was this word cute or pretty or whatever it was. And it kind of swirled in my head. And I thought, why isn't anyone making fitness clothing that actually fits, that actually flatters a little bit, and that might, because of that, actually help you feel better, therefore perform better. Okay, That's it. I ran home. I wrote those notes on a piece of paper. And I had the idea of a business right there. At that point, your business experience was waiting tables, a few temporary positions, right? And and being a triathlete. Managing your own business <laughs> as a yep. triathlete, right? Which, which actually is a great qualification for what you chose to do. But you're sitting there, it's 2003, Nike is on fire. Adidas at that time is just increasing and increasing its penetration in the U.S. market. What made you think that you could come into this competitive space as a newbie? I think ego and ignorance and pure just entrepreneurial spirit wanting to change the world. I don't know. A lot of things that people might think are negative. I just thought, geez, maybe it's just kind of being a dreamer. Could I do it? Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about, I think ego is a factor and I work with a lot of female leaders and ego is a challenge. Because I think as women, we're sort of taught, I mean, you you even said it, you know, a lot of things that people might say are bad. And of course, you know, egomania, not that fun to be around, but having some sense of self-assurance that allows you to take a risk that really at that time, I mean, talk about ignorance. I mean, that's a crazy risk you took. It was to huge. Yeah. Great. So when you're, you are involved with a lot of women at your company, people who you're helping get more fit, how do you deal with this issue of confidence in women? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it is a problem. And and we tackle it actually through the products we make help women gain confidence because they feel better in their bodies. Like they actually have clothing that fits them. Ego seems like it's a negative word, but maybe the biggest part of ego is confidence, like you said, but sometimes the idea of overconfidence And that's where you can get into trouble. And I had that. I mean, early on, (laughs) believe me, when I was getting this business off the ground and I got tons of just positive praise all the time, I was like, I am awesome. Look at me. I'm doing it, you know. And there's some part of that that's really good, but it can also, I don't know, muddy the waters a little bit and make you think you're more invincible than you may be. 
how did you decide which products to start with? How did you decide on the name of your company? Your company's called Skirt Sports. How did you get there? Um, well, when I launched, I decided that I would make one product that really epitomized this idea of sort of femininity in athletics. And going all the way back to Yale University, I wrote my thesis on that exact subject. And I found it later. I got a B minus. How sad is that? But it is so awesome because I was reading it thinking this still applies. I titled it The Female Athlete and Oxymoron. Wow. I was like, what society says feminine is and should be is the opposite of what our sports dictate, which is strength and aggression and you know, all of those things. So, and, and society was like, you need to be really skinny and just really nice all the time and really hospitable. Anyway, um, I think there's a nice balance between those two things, but I focused on one thing that epitomized that concept and it was a skirt for runners and athletes. And in my world, that did not exist. It was a brand new concept in a brand new category. If you step back, tennis, golf, lacrosse, they all had skirts and they all had fun and fashion in their fitness. But in running and triathlon and cycling and the endurance sports I did, we did not have anything fun or any kind of fashion. Where did you manufacture your first lot of skirts? Uh, Well, I had 10 skirts made by a home sewer, which was totally cool. And one of them is in a frame in skirt sports because that skirt went on to do something very cool. But I actually had my first lot made by a domestic manufacturer in the U.S. And I traveled out to see them many times and learned that business. That is a difficult and dirty business. It's tough. And I learned a lot through it. It's where we've gone through our biggest hurdles. So what did that first skirt do? Just because some people listening probably don't know the story. (laughs) Um, That first skirt looked like a little red mesh loincloth and it clipped on over my swimsuit when I was still doing my day job while pursuing this crazy idea. I signed up for the 2004 Ironman Wisconsin. And when I got off the bike in third place, I put that little skirt on. And that little skirt ran me twice around the University of Wisconsin course, passing all the women ahead of me and won the Ironman Wisconsin 2004, wearing a skirt by five minutes. And uh, it really was the culmination of of a lot of dreams together. That's a great story. I didn't know about I didn't know about the coming from third place and winning by five minutes. That's a great part of the story of your company. When you start this thing and you're a contrarian, kind of an upstart company, and just to remind people who are listening, right now you could do this and do exclusively direct sales. We're sitting here, it's 2016. You actually didn't need retailers, really, right now. One doesn't need retailers. We know a lot of examples of direct consumer companies, but you did. This is really, Mm -hmm. there was some direct, of course, in 2003, but largely you had to depend on retailers. How did you make that happen and establish a sales channel? Well, it it is interesting because I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to sell. All I knew is that I had product and I knew I wanted to get it out there. And now when we actually launched, it was February of 2005. And the internet existed, but online shopping was in its infancy. It's crazy. So we started out doing something that I know well. We went to expos. 
So I, I launched at the Austin Marathon Expo in 2005 and uh, sold direct to customers who could actually walk up, touch, and feel the product. And we did phenomenally. Hundreds of skirts out of the gate. And people were doing this thing you're not supposed to do. They were buying them and then wearing them the next day in a marathon, <laughs> never having worn them. And they were not perfect in the beginning. There were problems with those skirts, but it was a symbol for these women of like, wow, it's some kind of freedom. There was never a worry that women were sort of just, I guess, exiting the transition to being allowed to not wear skirts. I remember I was a, an attorney in 95 to 2000, and there were judges before whom I appeared that would not allow me to wear a pantsuit, as we called it then. Oh, that is so funny. I know. It, it's the weirdest thing, the way our culture has shifted a mindset. In sport, it was the opposite. They were sort of required to wear running shorts that didn't fit well or spandex shorts that showed everything because that's all there was to offer. And as women over the past decade or so are gaining more confidence, back to that word, um, we're realizing that we don't have to wear things that we don't feel good in. And so they were starting to look for options. And it is interesting because when I launched... I did not realize that this was going to be the most controversial new category in the sport of running that I mean, probably still in, in the clothing world. And it was like, I got hate mail really. Oh, for taking women back to skirts. Oh yeah. It was like women said, well, why should I have to care how I look? And I said, well, I'm not, you should care about whatever you want to care about. But for those women who don't feel like they have an option for themselves, we're providing that. Wow. So it's been 11 years. Yep. When did you know that you had a real company? That's a really good question. I'm still asking myself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a lot of benchmarks people talk about. The five-year point, you made five years, you're one of like 1% of companies or whatever that stat is. The business side is one thing. It's There's also something to be said when the thing that you create is actually copied and knocked off by more than just one or two little companies. But like everybody, right? Everyone, yeah. yeah. And then that whole category becomes real. Huh. And I thought, well, wow, we really started something. And I hope we can stay around for it and stick around through it. Because usually the company that starts a category, they dissolve at some point. That's interesting. Was I was thinking about this discussion with you, I really thought that you would view the competitive force that happened around your creation of this sector as something negative, but your first instinct was it was no. positive. No, it, my first instinct was to take it really personally and like stop every person who was wearing a skirt that wasn't ours and say, did you know who started that whole thing? And they were kind of looked at me weird. It finally hit after a while. My dad's great. He's actually been a financial guide for me through this. And he said, well, here's the deal, Nicole. Do you want to be the only company who does this and have an industry and a category that makes about a million bucks and own 100% of it? Or do you want a category that makes $100 million and you own 10% of it or more? <laughs> and I mean, it's obvious. You you want to be part of something that's growing. Right. It's funny. I have skirt sports skirts, including we'll talk about the gotta go skirt. I've got one. I was one of those funders. And I have a couple that are not skirt sports skirts. And I intentionally did not wear one here today. Yay. Hilarious? <laughs> I mean, right now I'm going to go home and I'm going to give those to Goodwill because that's ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
What percentage of your revenue is direct versus wholesale? Uh, we're probably about 50-50. Really? Yeah, we're, we're actually, we grew, our business has been up, down, and all around. I mean, crazy. We're not at the highest revenue we've ever been, but we're at a healthier place than we've been before. And um, you asked about the channels. When you, we have a multi-channel business, we've got about four channels, two of which are much bigger than the others. One of them is our DTC, direct to consumer, and one is our wholesale business. Those are both huge. They have very different margins and very different support needs. The wholesale business, and at the end of the day, you're not going to make much money on it, but it's going to help scale you. And it's great for your manufacturers because you can hit higher, you know, minimum order quantities. Um, With the direct business, you get a lot more flexibility. But the minute you do something direct, your wholesalers, they notice. So you need to be very sensitive so it can also constrain you. You can't just put whatever you want on sale whenever you want because you have too many because your stores carry it and then they want that same price. Um, And our other businesses, we just opened our first ever retail store. So now we've got brick and mortar. And that's a really cool channel because it, it provides us the opportunity to really connect, which is still important. People say brick and mortar is going away and it it's changing. It, I don't know if it'll go away ever completely, but for us, it's showing itself to be very important. Okay. Yeah. So if you do make your way to Boulder, Colorado, or you already live here, you can find Skirt Sports in corner of the sort of the northeast corner of a building that is right at 28th and Pearl. Definitely yeah. go check it out. Yeah. It's really, really a beautiful store. Thank you. I'm happy that I got to get in there and purchase one skirt. All right, Nicole, you have always been, or at least as long as I've been following the company, which is probably about the last six years, very personally connected in terms of how the company is marketed. Was that a difficult decision? Did that feel like the only decision for you? It's funny, we tried to extract me from that equation and sponsor other athletes and focus on a, a different track and it just wasn't resonating as much. And I finally realized that this hero story, it's still important. And the fact that I can be a role model for other women to go out and pursue their dreams, I needed to embrace it and stop trying to tell myself it wasn't important enough. And you don't necessarily have to have the best athletes in the world as your marquee marketing you know, platform. You can use real people. And so we finally embraced that. We embraced it about halfway through, to be honest. Got it. So I probably started paying attention. How old is your daughter? She's about halfway through. How old is she now? Four and a half. Four and a half. Okay, great. So when you were pregnant, yes. so five and a half years mm-hmm. ago, you did really an almost week to week, very, very intimate report of your pregnancy, how it played into sports, how you thought about being a mother. There were photos that were in- quite revealing that you posted. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they were proper and everything. But we didn't have any beautiful. nipples or anything, yeah, were, but it was, was, <laughs> was nip free, but still, it was pretty darn intimate and touching and connective mm-hmm. and, uh, How do you feel about the fact that you did that? You know, I actually think that was a turning point for us. You're right. It, it really showed us what it showed me. Okay. I've never felt more supported in my life. I put myself out there and I realized how important that is 
the more vulnerable you are, the more people get connected to you. They want to connect. They want to help you. And that's what I saw from this whole process. I asked for help. You guys, I sneezed and peed today. What's going on? (laughs) And I mean, women were just off the charts. They wanted to help. Here, try this product. Try this. Don't do this. You know, whatever. This just happens. It was it was amazing. And it made me realize the way that we could interact with our customers was different than it ever had been. And the new social media channels that were opening up to us allowed us to do it in a way that we couldn't before. So if you are, I'm sure you're an open follow on Facebook, follow Nicole DeBoom and go back Mm -hmm. five and a half years and just see this because it's really an extraordinary use of social media to create the kind of connective tissue you're talking about. Now you've taken that to the next level, right? So I know that six months ago or eight months ago, you began marketing this new concept called the gotta go skirt and you just went all the way. So I'm just going to tell them what it is from my perspective as a consumer. You know, you're out, you're running, you have to pee. We've all been there, ladies, guys, you've been there too. It's just really easy for you. And when you have to pee and you're on a trail and you essentially have to show every part of your lower body in order to execute the act of peeing. So the Gotta Go skirt has an amazingly beautifully designed Velcro kind of hatch that allows you to achieve your mission while you're on the run, right? You nailed it. How was that? It was awesome. All right. So you do this, by the way, if you follow, follow Skirt Sports and watch these videos of Nicole and her team actually <laughs> showing you how you pee on the trail, because they're also wildly intimate. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. Well, what's funny is that Sue and I are both peeing right now and you can't even tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> you nailed it. What's funny is the gotta go actually started as a joke, an April Fool's joke, but... I knew there was a need for this because for 10 years, women have been stopping me and saying, Nicole, I have a problem. It's really embarrassing to talk about. I have some incontinence. I had kids. I have whatever. And when I, when I run, I pee a little, or I just, I got to pee a lot, or my periods are really heavy. Like it's just really bad. And I need something that can help give me, you know, easier access, whatever. And then we joke, like, maybe this could be an easy access newlywed skirt, too. Because, <laughs> by the way, it does have a trap door opening. So it's a trap door, and it opens up to this big hole in the bottom of the skirt. So we sent it out as an April Fool's joke. But I put a survey to it and said, would you like to see us make this? If so, would you fund it on a Kickstarter? And people said yes. So we did it. That's greatly. It was startup really example. cool. It was cool because we were, yeah, yeah, it was great. So we launched that thing last year. It was amazing, and we just decided to take the track of using real women who would really just share openly the problems they were having. And I remember looking at our whiteboard, and we said, "What's our three problems? P, periods." and dripping. It was like three things that were really kind of gross. And anybody who walked by the room would be like, what the hell are you ladies talking about? (laughs) Um, And we addressed them and we addressed them in a real way, but in a way that had some humor, but really just helped women feel like they weren't alone out there. And for those of you paying attention, go back and look at the launch of this. What's really interesting about what you did, Nicole, is as you were building this skirt, you reported back to your Kickstarter audience about when the samples, you essentially shipped on time, or don't say if you don't, because I had it in my head that you did. And there was this one video where you showed and you said, well, we've got our all but final samples. Here's what I want to tell you, girls. You said, 
it's going to feel tight when you put this skirt on. You're really going to have to pull the legs up because Nicole didn't say this, but these are sort of skorts, right? Mm-hmm. They have they have the uh, built-in short. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you described it and then you showed it on a video about how you were really going to have to pull your and I got mine and you know you're darn right you really do have to. But what I loved about that is just the honesty that you were sharing with your purchasing audience to set expectations right, to explain why it was going to feel like that. And then it was essential because there was this gap in, mm-hmm. in the short. Yep. Was that a hard decision to share that? Well, I found over time that there's two ways you can go. You can you can share up front or you can wait and see how many people <laughs> complain. I, and we try to take the approach as much as we can about sharing up front. Yeah. And in this case, I literally was in my underwear in the dressing room going, don't worry about my underwear. I just got to pull this thing on so you can That's see how right. it works. That's right. That shows up in the audio of that. So you've taken this customer input, intimacy, connective tissue to a whole new level right now with this new initiative you've launched. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Oh yeah. It's called the sewing room. And we decided that after the success of the gotta go, women are still asking us to do things. No, they're telling us, do this, do this, make this for me. And I finally thought, well, why can't we bring that design process in-house? No one is doing this in fitness. And there are a couple fashion brands. So I don't have to be the very first person to come up with this brand new idea. I can see what other people are doing and make, see how it could work for my company and my customer. It's a three-stage process. You share your design idea, then you support ideas, and in the end, you fund or pre-order the styles that make it to that final stage. And we already went through the first design share process, and there are 11 styles ranging from the one that's the number one in the leaderboard, the high-waist happy girl skirt. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Women are like... Did you name that or did somebody... Someone named it. They called the happy happy high-waist girl. (laughs) It was amazing. And there's the no chub rub skirt. That's like in the top three, bringing back a cycling style. So it's really cool what we were able to put up there. And after the voting ends in a few weeks, we're going to take the top three and we have committed. We're going to make these. I don't care what they are. We're That's making fantastic. them because you want them. That's really exciting. And, and just to point out, we didn't talk a lot about this today, but running a business where you make stuff and have to order a ton of product and a lot of SKUs and colors and sizes, and you're ordering presumably some of this stuff, at least from overseas, is really a high-risk proposition. And this really does de-risk some of your manufacturing. Actually, it could be a part of the business that helps us find a steadier way to fund our manufacturing You know, over a year. And uh, we will still have huge collections each season. That's that's our line. But these are the fun extra things that we didn't plan to put in, but you're telling us to do. That's great. I love it. Have you ever raised money for skirt sports? Have yes. you taken outside investment? Mm-hmm. Great. Yep. How much have you taken if you share that publicly? Um, uh, we don't share it publicly, great. but I've raised money twice. Okay, got it. The one other thing that I want to be sure we talk about is that Part of your mission orientation around creating this business, you if you feel good, your mind works better, all of the things that you've talked about in terms of your own moral compass really play out in this business. And you were doing these races and cities all over the United States to try to get more women comfortable with running just to help with fitness broadly. Where is that in the panoply of what you're focused on and How is it going? With our new nonprofit. Well, yeah. You were running it as part of the company, right? Yes. So we had a program that we launched a few, five years ago called Kickstart. And the idea was, this is when the economy had tanked, 
we still found that women still wanted to give back, but money was sort of a barrier. And so there's still a lot of people out there who need help. And there's a lot of women out there who want to help. So we decided to put those two parties together and we launched a program that gets beginners. These are women with huge barriers to fitness. Like they could be homeless. They could have lost a child. They could be caring for sick parents. I mean, all kinds of problems they have, yet they know they need to change their lives. And we pair them with what we call a personal motivator. And this is a woman who is giving back and helping a woman literally change her life through finding power, strength, and courage through fitness. That's fantastic. So how can people find out about that organization? Um, Now it's called Running Start. We have a website, running-start.org. We are growing it. We are fundraising right now. Next year, we'll have two programs. The year after, we hope to grow it beyond Colorado. Awesome. So if you want to get involved in Running Start, either as a funder or as somebody who gives your time or as somebody who is the recipient of all the benefits Mm -hmm. of Running Start, check it out at running-start.org. Nicole, you got a B minus on your thesis at Yale <laughs> around the feminine and athletics. So I'm curious today as we sit here in year 11 of skirt sports, what grade would you give yourself as a founder and CEO? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I'm going to give myself an A minus because I'm still here. I am not doing everything right but I am still here and I'm doing better than above average. I'm still driven every day to get out there and try to make the world a better place in so many ways. And my business has gone, like I said, up, down and all around, but we are finding a direction for it that makes sense and a way that it can live in this world and help to help other women change their lives. That's wonderful. If there's one thing that you're still really learning right now, we're, If you sort of mastered this one thing, your leadership would be amped far beyond, you know, Mm. a total step change to where your leadership is heading now. What would that be? I think there's a, a fine line between caring too much and caring just enough. And, um, I think that leaders can get themselves in trouble and stall themselves out when they care too much, whether it's about other people or an initiative they're trying to do or sticking to their original business plan and get rid of some of that emotion. Emotion's important. It drives us. It's part of the equation. But especially for women, we tend to operate a little more on heart and I think operating a little more on gut can help us too. So Go through those soul searching times in your life. Listen to that gut, you know, really take stock of what it's saying and then balance it against your heart. That's a great way to approach that. Hopefully those of you listening are still listening and listened all the way through. I babble a lot. It was wonderful. (laughs) You've reached the end of yet another episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Nicole DeBoom, founder and CEO of Skirt Sports, which you can find at skirtsports.com. I'm sure at this point, you're just as excited about getting involved in this company as, as I have been since I encountered Nicole and her company. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sarah. As always, Real Leaders is sponsored by Merge Lane, the accelerator for companies with at least one female in leadership. The 2017 Accelerator class begins February 5th 
and applications are open on September 1st, 2016. So if you or someone you know leads a company with at least one female in leadership, that's absolutely awesome. We want to hear from you. Thanks for joining us.